0: This evening is the first Sunday night of the month, and that's when I generally answer questions that have been submitted uh, during the previous month. I will tell you as I prepare to do this, I realize that most of the questions I've been receiving for the last couple of months, most of them have come from the probably fourth grade through the tenth grade. And uh, two of the questions tonight I know came from our young people, and uh, they're not here, so they'll just have to listen to it on the Internet. And uh, But I want you to know how much we appreciate them. Young people are naturally inquisitive. That's a part of their nature. I know all of us remember the little kids coming up to us. Why does this do this? Why does that do that? And the Bible reflects that. For instance, in Joshua chapter 4, verse 6, and then verses 21 and 22 that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, what do these stones mean to you? And then you drop down to verses 21 and 22, and it talks about the children. It says, what do these stones mean? And he said, you'll let your children know this is where we crossed the Jordan River on dry land. God dried up the land, we took a rock, and that's what these stones mean, Or you can go back to the book of Exodus to chapter 12. And as they were preparing to leave Egypt and during the time of the death of the firstborn and the institution of the Passover, and it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. You think about the children as they were looking at their father, taking the blood of that animal and, and putting it on the lintel and on the doorpost. And, well, Daddy, what does that mean? What does that mean to us in the future? Exodus chapter 13. He talked about the redemption of the firstborn. And how important that was in association with the Passover. And it noticed there, he says, in verse 14, And so it shall be when your son asks you in a time to come, what is this? And then you'll say, by the strength of the hand of the Lord, he brought us out of Egypt. What you find is, is that children will ask, why are we doing what we are doing? And I think that's significant. I can remember when our boys asked the question, as the Lord's Supper was being passed, what is that bread and what is that grape juice for? And you explained to them how that it relates to our memory of the Lord's death and His burial and His resurrection. Well, here's the first question that was asked by some of our young people. It was taken from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Genesis 1-1 said God created heavens and earth. Why does it say heavens when there's only one heaven? That's a real perceptive question because the children are hearing we go to heaven and they say but he's talking about the heavens and the earth. What does he mean by that? Let me point out to you that if you look at your Bible the term heavens, plural, is found 100 and. 53 or 173 times in the Bible, and the singular heaven is found 531. However, when I go back and I look at those words more deeply, in the Hebrew Bible, several of the times, particularly in Genesis 1 and 2, where the word is translated heaven singular, it's actually plural in the original language. And so we see the word heaven or heavens in the Bible frequently. But the concept of heavens, plural, is one from the Jewish mind. It's also reflected in Scripture. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 2, Paul writes, I know a man in Christ 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know. God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And you see, the Jewish mind, there were three heavens. There was, number one, the first heaven, and that is the sky, where the birds fly. And then the second heaven was where the sun, the moon, the stars are located. And that would be what we would call the universe, or maybe space. And then the third heaven was where God is, which is beyond the universe, or beyond the the sky. Well, now as we explore that idea, we realize that the Bible also calls attention to that. For instance, the phrase, heaven of heavens, is used quite frequently. Let me illustrate it to you in 1 Kings chapter 8, and verse 27. Solomon is talking about the building of the temple. And it says, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven... And the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. Think about that. Heaven and the heaven of heavens. What is he talking about? There's a distinction there between the two. And thus, in Genesis 1 and verse 1, the emphasis is here on the physical creation as opposed to God's location. Let me illustrate that by going... With you. If you keep your Bible open there to Genesis 1, look verses 8 and 9. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. And then God said, Let the waters under heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. You drop down to verses 14 and 15. And then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day and the night. Let them be for signs and seasons, for days and years, and let them be for the lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on earth, and it was so. Verses 17 and verse 20 now. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. Verse 20, and then God said let the waters abound with abundance of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. And you see what you start understanding is what the reference is to that which is above the earth where the birds fly, where the sun, the moon, the stars are located that give light on the earth. That's exactly like the Jewish view of the heavens. God likewise created the host of heaven. When you're reading Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 6, you read, You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve them all. The host of heaven worship you. And I think what he, there is the, the uh, indication there that when he talks about the heaven of heavens with all their host, it appears he's talking about the creation that God created on those six days. They all give glory to God. They all reflect. You know, as David would say in the Psalms, he talks about the sun, the moon, the stars, how they reflect the glory of God. So the question was, why do we talk about the heavens and the earth when there's only one heaven? There's only place, one place where God's divine residence is, if you would call it that. It's a spiritual realm. It is beyond this physical creation, and yet we have this physical creation which has where the birds fly and where the planets are. Question number two, why was Jesus crucified on a cross? When I received this question and I read it, you could tell it was written by a young hand, I thought, wow, that is a very profound question. Something that is being mauled around in their minds and there's two different ways you could take the question because as I start thinking about, here's a young mind in, you know, inquiring, wanting to know about why was Jesus crucified, was the question was, why was Jesus crucified is why did he have to die? And boy, that's a, a wonderful question. Why did Jesus have to die versus me having to die? Why did Jesus have to die versus an animal having to die? Why was it him that had to die? with the emphasis on why did Jesus have to die on the cross. Or the second way the question could be taken is, why was Jesus crucified on a cross? Why this means of execution versus another means of execution? If you don't know which question was meant, you know what you have to do? You have to answer them both. And so that's what I'm going to try to do in the next few minutes. I'm not going to try to make it long or extended, but just simply... Address the question, why did Jesus have to die? He was the only perfect, sufficient sacrifice to provide forgiveness of sins. The Bible uses this big, long word to talk about what Jesus did, and it's the word propitiation. Real long word. What it means is to satisfy the Need for forgiveness. You know, if, if a man does something and he makes his wife angry and he says, I, I want to get back on her good side and he may can go buy her some flowers and then everything be alright. He may go buy her flowers and that won't work. He may can apologize and that will work or he may apologize and that won't work. You see, whatever it is that satisfies For forgiveness to take place is called propitiation. Man has sinned. He has violated God's law. He stands condemned for what he has done. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6 and verse 23. What then would it take for God to say, Okay, the law has been satisfied. Romans chapter 3 verses 25 and 26 say he is both the just and the justifier of him who has faith in Christ Jesus. Just. God's justice is there. It's perfect. He is also justifier in the sense that he provided the means for it. There wasn't any other way. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26... Verse 39 and verse 42, he went in that garden, he prayed fervently, he said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42, he prayed a second time, oh Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass. The cup could not pass because that was the one, the only way that a person could be forgiven of their sins. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see the truth is only a spotless, unblemished sacrifice is sufficient. And that's the reason why neither you nor I could be the sacrifice for sin because every one of us has a spot. Every one of us has a blemish. First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your vainless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Hebrews 9.22 says, According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. You see, in God's divine justice, there has to be death. There has to be the shedding of blood, and it has to be perfect. And so you and I can't qualify, but neither can animals. In Hebrews 10 and verse 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Well, so then why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Because he was the only one who could die and have our sins forgiven. That is the very basis of the gospel, of the good news. That he was willing to die for my sins, sins that I could not pay the penalty thereof. Second part of the question, why the cross? Jesus knew that he was going to die on a cross. And he frequently would use the phrase, a man bearing his own cross. If you'll remember in Matthew 10, verse 38, And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus spoke both of those before he died on the cross. He knew in advance what was coming. He knew that he would be dying on the cross. But even plainer than that is found in John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33. And Jesus says, If I... If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Lift up. lifted up on a cross. He said, that is going to be the thing that is going to draw men to me, that I'm going to die on the cross. And you know what? That's exactly what draws us. But he knew it was going to be a cross even before he died you see, if you read passages like Galatians 3, verse 13, where Paul reflects on the Old Testament, he said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And then he cites, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. He's quoting Deuteronomy 21 and verse 23, talking about his body shall not remain overnight on the tree. But you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed from God. Hanging a person on a tree is not by a rope around the neck, but it was that of crucifixion. The Old Testament prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. But then why a cross? If you want to study the background of crucifixion, that's a real interesting study in and of itself. If you study, you'll find out that it was actually a part of the Babylonians to some degree, but it was the main or a major means of execution by the Persians. And when the Romans came along, they took that and made that as their primary means of execution of those who were criminals. Rarely was a Roman crucified. But those who were slaves, those who were prisoners, those who were normal criminals, they were often crucified on a cross. They were crucified and placed at major road intersections or at the gates of a city so that everybody entering in is going to learn, you do something wrong, you're going to be crucified. It was a very painful means of execution Quite frequently a person who was crucified would be put on the cross and in about three to four hours they would die of asphyxiation because in order to breathe they would have to push up with their legs or pull up with their arms and they would soon just wear out. They had been scourged, they'd been beaten, and so they were so weakened pretty soon they couldn't pull up enough to get a breath to be able to live. The Roman soldiers who stood at the foot of those crosses could not leave until their criminal Had died. And those cruel, heartless uh, Roman soldiers would often take a mallet and break the legs of those who were on the cross so that they couldn't push up anymore and get a breath. Or, in order to verify that they had truly died, they would take their spear and they would shove it up into the body cavity, trying to pierce the heart. Not only to verify whether or not a person would die, but if they were swooning, that is, appearing to be dead and were not, that would assure that they would have died. You see, in our society today, we consider that just to be cruel and unusual punishment. When I was a child, I remember a few people who were executed in our country by means of the electric chair. Others who were in other states were executed by means of a gas chamber. For several years, capital punishment was outlawed and then it came back and most frequently now in our society it happens by lethal injection. But the Romans wanted it to be something of a statement. Why did they crucify Jesus on a cross? That was their common means of execution and they wanted to make it as gruesome as. As possible. Question number three. Why were the Jews keeping swine in Mark 5, verses 11 through 17? I preached a sermon just a few weeks ago on driving Jesus away. And talking about how people try to push Jesus out of their homes. They try to push him out of their lives. And one of the passages I used as an illustration was found in Mark chapter 5 where Jesus healed a man who was possessed by demons, called legion. And those who were inhabiting that man, those demons, many of them, asked to be cast into the swine. We're going to pick up in verse 11. Now, a herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. And so the demons begged him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission... The unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine, they told in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what had happened. And so the question is why would Jews be keeping swine? Swine was an unclean animal. It was something that did not meet the qualifications for a clean animal, and so you could not eat that animal. Why then would Jews be keeping them? Well, here is the answer. Number one, there is nothing in the text that says they were Jews. You read it several times, and you'll come back and say, well, there's nothing there that says they were Jews. Though that has been assumed by most people, that they've got to be Jews because Jesus is dealing with them. But let me offer a notice here. When you think about Galilee, that's right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, what is that noted for in the Bible? Matthew 4, verse 15 says, The land of Zebulun, the land of Nephtali, by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. This area was frequently occupied. In fact, there were several areas where Gentile people settled there. And they most often settled in ten cities called the cities of the Decapolis. They were Hellenistic, that is Greek culture cities, with practices which would have been offensive to the Jews. When we go on our tours to the Bible lands, we will go to the city of Shan. In the New Testament times, it was called Sathopolis. There's also a city on the other side of Jordan now called Gerash or Gerasa. And it was noted for being one, these two of the ten cities. Our tour guide, when we first arrived there, said, this is Las Vegas. And what he meant by that, it was a city of so much immorality. Prostitution was... Very common there. It was a city that had all kinds of immoralities in it. In fact, you walk down the main street, the Cardo, you walk inside and look and they had areas where people would observe men and animals having carnal relations. You would have another area where people would be observing two men or two women having relations with one another. And you'd say, boy, this was vulgar. Jewish people wouldn't want to spend much time in the cities of the Decapolis. But this was the Greek influence. This is where the Romans would, Gentiles would gather. And because of that, you go and look at Mark chapter 5, verse 20. And he, that is the man who was healed, departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. Why did he go to the Decapolis? Is it possible that he and the swine owners were Gentiles rather than being Jews? But if they were Jews, Jews occasionally engaged in a profession that was distasteful for them, provide business for others. Let me illustrate that to you. You remember in the illustration that Jesus used, the parable of the prodigal son, you remember the prodigal son went first into this foreign country and he wasted his father's substance with riotous living. But you come to verse 15 and it says, Then he joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. That's something that a person would normally not want to do. But if you were in a hungry situation as he was, you would be able to feed swine. And he said he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods which the swine ate and no one gave him anything. There's another person that comes into the picture. In Acts 9, verse 43, Peter is in Joppa. He's at the house of a man by the name of Simon. But we learn that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon who was a tanner. And he said, well, I don't see the big deal about being a tanner. You handle dead bodies. And the rabbis would say of all the professions that a man should have, you shouldn't be a tanner because a tanner handles dead animals all the time. And you would be ceremonially unclean all the time. So if these were Jews, they may have been the owners But they could have been providing a product for those Gentiles who would be consumers of it. And I can tell you, I can understand that. First time I went to Israel, Tim and I went and we'd stayed in hotels that were owned and controlled by Jewish people. And they were kosher hotels. The last stop on our trip was the Seven Arches Hotel east of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. Tim and I got up and went to breakfast. I got there in the morning and looked and saw on the buffet there was bacon. And you know what? I I was just like, shoo, there's bacon here. I'm excited. Hadn't seen bacon for days. But you know, neither the Jews nor the Muslims eat pork. But they know Americans do. And they said, if they want it, We'll put it there for them to eat. That's exactly what perhaps the Jews did. My opinion is they were likely Gentiles. But if they were Jews, they could have been Jews, not necessarily the consumers of their product, but of those who were growing it as a part of their business. Now, we're constantly reminded there are some questions of greater significance. The ones that I have dealt with tonight are are those which I think some of great interest to people, But when you start thinking about the most serious questions that can come to our minds is, first of all, what must I do to be saved? Here's a man who wants to know where he can go, what he wants to do to go to heaven and to be with God and live eternally. That question has been answered several times. Acts 2, verse 38, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Acts 16 and verse 30, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with your house and you'll be saved. And then there's the question, Lord, what would you have me to do? And God has answered that in providing for us His Word. And sometimes what that Word says is, you need to repent. Just like in Acts chapter 8, Simon the sorcerer, When he had asked to be able to buy the gift of God with money, was told to repent and pray that the thought of his heart would be forgiven him. That's what we do. We come to God confessing our sins, and then we repent and pray for God's forgiveness. What will also be important is how we will answer before God when God looks at us and has each of us to give an account for who we are. We're going to sing the song, All to Jesus I Surrender. That's a real important song. It reflects an attitude of heart that says, Whatever God tells me to do, I'll surrender my will to Him. If you need to surrender tonight, why not come as together we stand and sing?